who decides what stories get told. Over the past several weeks, we've seen state legislatures across the country move to limit students' access to stories by and about black and brown Americans and by and about queer Americans. In some cases, they're even threatening fines and punishment against teachers or students that are stepping outside of the line. In book publishing, massive consolidation in the industry has left just a handful of gatekeepers, mostly based in New York, that determine which stories are worthy of print. Most newsrooms across the country still don't look like the communities they serve and continue to cut staff. In Hollywood, while there have been major strides to diversify in recent years, the ability to greenlight projects still remains in the hands of a select few. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview, folks. I'm John Hammontree, and this week I have the real pleasure of speaking with Anjanu Ellis and Christine Swanson about their efforts to get a feature film made about Fannie Lou Hamer, an icon of the Mississippi Freedom Rights Movement. Anjanu Ellis is an Academy Award nominee for her performance in the 2021 biopic King Richard. She's also a two-time Emmy nominee for her work in When They See Us and Lovecraft Country. Christine Swanson is a two-time nominee for the NAACP Image Awards for her films For the Love of Ruth and The Clark Sisters, The First Lady of Gospel, which also starred Ellis. That's how they met. And they recently put together a film called Fanny as a proof of concept in an effort to get a full biopic made about Fanny Lou Hamer. Today, we'll discuss Hamer's story and legacy, the hurdles to getting films like this made, and the relationship between art and advocacy. And of course, we talked about Mississippi. So let's go ahead and get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Anjanu Ellis and Christine Swanson, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having us. Thank you. We are here to discuss your short film, Fanny, which is about Fannie Lou Hamer. And the film itself takes place with her famous speech at the 1964 Democratic Convention. But I want to back up a little bit and let y'all give us a full picture of who Fannie Lou Hamer really was. My understanding is the idea for this project originated with you, Anjanu, is that right? Yeah, Christine and I have been met each other a couple years ago working on a project called the Clark Sisters movie. From that, we just developed a, you know, a friendship and a creative alliance, and then ultimately really became creative collaborators. And that seed was that film. So, you know, we are just always in each other's thoughts and ideas and constantly exchanging them and constantly being in conversation. And I had a few years ago, decided that I wanted to tell the story or at least write a story about Mrs. Hamer. I just wanted to get people to be involved. I wanted it to be a Mississippi production, top to bottom, looking for a writer, looking for a director. You know, all of them would be from Mississippi. That was the dream, but I couldn't get anybody involved. So I just said, well, I guess I have to do this myself. And so I started writing and I've been, you know, churning ideas and doing research for a couple years. And so when I met Christine, that was just a part of the soup of stuff that we were stirring. I was stirring and she would tell me things. I would tell her things. And so then I guess in 2020, I wrote the screenplay. I finished it. So last summer, I was getting really anxious, had gotten a lot of no's. And I said, I just feel like I need to put something in the world. And she said, okay, let's do it. So we talked about that. And Christine being who Christine is, I'm a little more of a wallflower than she is. She doesn't just talk about it. She is about it. And she applied for this grant and we got the grant through this organization called Chromatic Black. And we got a grant for $10,000. And she came to Chicago this past fall and we shot what you see in the short film. Christine, tell me about 
you know, the choice to use the archival footage of people there actually at the Democratic convention reacting to her speech, you know, spliced with with Anjanou acting in the role of Fannie Lou Hamer. Yeah. So conceptually, I, I pitched something very similar to what we had. But initially, my idea was to juxtapose images of current voter suppression, whatever those images would have been. And it was in the performance, I felt like I had everything set up with a green screen in the background because we were going to show those images like behind Anjanou speaking. And I don't know if I told Anjanou this, but in the middle of her performance, I changed my mind. I decided to go with a straight black screen in the background and really hone in on what she was giving us and just capture that. So by using the black background, it just didn't make sense to, to juxtapose images behind her because now I'm not using the green screen. And instead, it made sense in terms of texture and scope to use archival footage to intercut with her performance. So, and as you can see, like there's just this kind of strong juxtaposition of what she's saying and what people are doing. Actual footage from that committee that she was addressing as well. It just felt more powerful to do it that way. And somehow it still feels very contemporary in many ways as well. So it's just worked out, you know, editing, you just try things, how it feels is is really how it landed. Well, yeah, the text of the speech itself, which I believe y'all used her actual words from the convention, she has a writing credit on the script, you know, feels very urgent for, for the moment we're in right now with with ongoing voter suppression efforts and the efforts to pass the Voting Rights Act, you know, again. And so, you know, let's talk about that moment in her life, because I feel like Ms. Hamer is not somebody who necessarily gets her due. Her story does not get told as much broadly. I bet it gets told better in Mississippi. I grew up in Alabama, so we did not hear her story growing up. But how familiar were you with her story growing up on June? I wasn't. I wasn't at all. Went through 12 years of school, went to a respectable college, majored in African-American studies actually there, but did not have a day, not one day, uh, where I was taught anything about Mrs. Hamer. And it's incredible how consequential who she is and what she is and what she did for me not to have any knowledge of her. It defies reason, but we know so much in this world that we live in has nothing to do with reason. So no, I didn't, I didn't know anything about her. You know, we have these stories that are told through the grapevine at home in Mississippi. And I probably learned about her that way. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, I I come from Macomb is where I was raised. And I think, you know, I have been sort of sorting this stuff out. And I think the one of the reasons is not just there was like suppression about Mrs. Hamer in my formalized schooling. I also feel that there was a sort of fatigue that happened. And, you know, people like my grandmother and her peers, they were just tired. They were tired. You know, there was a point in the early 60s, well, all throughout the 60s, actually, that Macomb was actually called the bombing capital of the world because bombs went off so frequently. And my grandfather's church was actually bombed and he was arrested for that bombing. And I just found out a few couple of weeks ago through my cousin's research that he was kidnapped one night after church by these guys and they took him to a park somewhere 
And he just essentially was praying so, so hard that they were embarrassed and felt bad and felt convicted by his prayer and they let him go. So this, this, there was trauma there. And I think that, you know, my family and our community was just really tired. And the thing is, is that someone like Mrs. Hamer, even though everything she did was in, when you think about the scope of it is incredible and awe inspiring that we were a town of Fannie Lou Hamer's. You know, everybody was getting bombed. Everybody was getting beat up. Everybody was getting shot at. You know, it was a regular thing that people lived with. I didn't know about her, you know, but as the older I got, I started hearing more. But it it came through that grapevine of freedom rights stories that are told at family functions and, and that kind of thing. Christine, what about you growing up? Did you know much about her story? Not at all. Not at all. And in fact, even as an adult, like I I wasn't as familiar with her story as our traditional civil rights heroes. But it's it's interesting, though, as as a uh, filmmaker by profession, I'm just um, very much aware of how stories get made and who gets to tell stories. When you look at in terms of what gets made because of the costs involved, typically in a movie about a civil rights hero, Typically, people who look like us don't get to decide what films get greenlit. So that's why we have so many Rosa Parks stories and so many Martin Luther King stories. Not that they are without value, great value, but somebody is consistently greenlighting specific stories over and over and over and over again. Speaking of people who are tired of the way things were and are, I feel like this is a time where maybe we have a chance to change a trajectory of storytelling by interjecting ourselves in the process. Now that doesn't make it necessarily easier because I always say like, just write me the check. I can tell the story, but I really feel that there needs to be a shift in who gets to green light stories and tell stories. And not that people who look like me should green light stories. I'm just saying like choices would be different if I greenlit stories. I feel like this is a time where now we can put a spotlight on a different civil rights hero than Martin Luther King Jr. and say, hey, these people existed too. And they made great contributions to all the liberties that we're enjoying today. Let's tell their stories in the way that only I can tell it in, in, in the way that only Anjanou can tell it. And let's see uh, what comes out of that. Us participate in the telling of our history in the way that we want. Well, I was thinking about that, you know, as I was preparing for this interview, it does seem like the, the big Hollywood theatrical release stories that get greenlit are often centered around men of the movement. What hurdles are you running into institutionally? You know, Anjana, you talked about you, you got very frustrated trying to get this film developed and, and couldn't get it developed. I think first and foremost, you know, that yes, the, the story of the civil rights movement and the freedom rights movement has been very genderized and genderized very male. And even, I have to say, even when there are women producers, and women greenlighters, and some of them happen to be Black women. That is where it tend, the direction that it tends to go in. And then when there is the story, somehow or another, it's still told through the lens of, of the perspective of a male. What's different about, and I, I applaud Christine for doing this, is we let Mrs. Hamer speak for herself. Her words are strong enough. They're dramatic enough. We don't have to do anything else. What we are bumping up against is the belief that that is enough. 
Well, it's interesting, you know, the way you said earlier that you lived in a town full of Fannie Lou Hamers, because, you know, the way that the common narrative of the civil rights movement gets told is, you know, it's centered around upper middle class men like like Martin Luther King Jr. Most of the people who were foot soldiers on the ground who were, you know, getting shot at and beaten and attacked by the Klan would have been people who were grew up sharecroppers like Fannie Lou Hamer. And so I think you know, the drama in her story, what draws you to her story, Christine? Because, you know, it's incredible what she was able to accomplish. Uh, and my understanding is that, you know, some of the people who were in an SCLC weren't necessarily comfortable with her taking center stage because of her background. Anjanou Ellis drove me to the story. I was raised by two Fannie Lou Hamers. I was raised by my grandmother and my great aunt. Um, at the time I entered their lives, they were in their mid-60s. And they were from Louisville, Mississippi. I, they were just like depositing into my life things that only now I can appreciate. It's how ironic it, it, it's that our ancestors have always been speaking to us and through us. And now I'm listening more so than ever, you know, and many of them are gone. So a lot of it is like memory. And I, I feel like the challenge to me as a storyteller, as a filmmaker is how do I make their memory come alive in the way that I knew them, in the way that I loved them, and in the way that they loved me, which is very, very different than even how I raise my own children. I just wish I could maybe put it in a book or something and just say, this is how you raise a warrior. They knew this intuitively. I didn't understand it, except in hindsight. They're very much reminiscent to me of Mrs. Hamer, in terms of their resilience. It's interesting because we are, I don't want to frame like women like that as just resilient, strong, and they are all those things. But I also got to see uh, them in ways um, where they were very, very vulnerable and very, very honest, unafraid, but very aware of the circumstances surrounding them and trying to teach me and, and deposit into me like the tools to navigate the world that they knew you know they would just be shocked like to see me like today given the world that they knew but they prepared me in many ways to use the tools that we have today to make sure that they're not forgotten that is what i'm called to do coming up after the break more from ingenue ellis and christine swanson Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you've wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. Anjanou, just so our listeners have you know a sense of who she is, as you were putting together this screenplay about her, can, can you tell us a little bit about her story and all that she accomplished in Mississippi? Well, Mrs. Hamer was the 20th child. She was the youngest, actually, of 20 children. Her father was a farmer, and they were actually had gotten to a point where they were doing really well. They had horses. They were, you know, self-sustaining. And then there were some envious white people in their neighborhood, and they came along and poisoned all their horses. So it, it essentially threw them back into really abject poverty. So she was the 20th child. She was picking cotton at the age of six and essentially doing so because of what happened with her father and her. They needed the money. 
the sharecropper who who got her to pick cotton at six years old enticed her to do so, not just because of money, but he said, I'll give you this candy if you pick this cotton, if you pick this row of cotton. So her career as a sharecropper as started her career on a labor camp started when she was six years old. And then she was a sharecropper married to Perry Hamer, Perry Pap Hamer. And they were, they were sharecroppers in the Marlowe labor camp. We call them plantations, but they're labor camps in Ruleville, Mississippi. And she was devout in the church, living that life. And then SNCC came around and they were trying to get people to, first of all, know that they could vote because Mrs. Hamer did not know she could vote. She didn't, she only, she thought only white people could do that, her words. And they came and spoke at a, at a mass meeting and a mass rally and the words of James Bevel convicted her and it changed her life. And it thrust her into being a, someone who was an activist for, for voting rights. She got the right to vote, became an activist for voting rights. Long story short, in the process of this, she was beaten uh, in Winona jail because she was in the act of not just getting the right to vote for herself, but teaching other people how to register. And all those things that people had to deal with just to vote, like poll taxes, literacy tests. She was training people, went to a training meeting to, to help people with that. And on her way home, she was they were arrested. She was beaten literally within an inch of her life, survived that. And then went on to go to the Democratic National Convention in 1964 with SNCC, the Southern uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Ella Baker, Bob Moses, all these folks. And they went to New Jersey to take the seats and to usurp the seats that were claimed you know, by the all-white, all-male delegation from Mississippi. This made Lyndon Johnson so angry. That speech that people see uh, in the short, he called for a press conference so the world wouldn't see it. They interrupted her, took the cameras away from her, went to the White House. The cameras went to the White House so he could talk about that. People don't even remember what he was talking about. It's so interesting that when you see the footage of the press conference that he called, the, the reporters are like mystified. They're like, why are we here? Is this why you called us over here? It's, it's really comical. But then the, the networks, the national networks at the time, you know, there are only three, right, at that time. They decided, you know what, this is good television. We want to air this. We want to see this. And so she was able to give her speech in full on national television. And because she did that, it really put the Democratic Party on, on blast, because it called their very, what they imagined themselves to be, it called all of that into question because they had to decide who they were. You know, do they seat these moral people, sharecroppers and maids and beauticians from Mississippi, or do they seat the, the so-called Dixiecrats? And it put the whole, the whole convention in a spin. Well, and it's interesting that Lyndon Johnson you know, who the common narrative, we, we credit him with a lot of passage of the civil rights bills, that he was so threatened by her speech that he would call a press conference during that, but not speeches by, by Martin Luther King Jr. Or, or John Lewis or James Bevel. Why do you think her message was so radical at that time? Great question. 
I think that he was particularly threatened by her because Mrs. Hamer was talking about a life she lived. And that's not to say, I mean, the other speakers, Charles King was a speaker. He was a chaplain at Tougaloo College. Um, As you said, John Lewis and Martin Luther King and also Aaron Henry, who was a pharmacist from Mississippi, whose pharmacy was bombed. All of them had, you know, we all know, you know, what Dr. King went through. Here's the difference. Dr. King was shot at. Dr. King was put in the Birmingham jail. And actually they were, Mrs. Mrs. Hamer and Dr. King, they were in jail around the same time. And but it's interesting, I had this conversation with actually Michael Dyson, and we could sort of kind of work this through. When Martin Luther King was in jail, he got to write letters. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> he would write letters. You know what I mean? When Mrs. Hamer was in jail, she was getting her tail beat. So the, the, the testimony of that is so powerful. It's so powerful. It embarrassed him. He couldn't stand for it. And he, as you know, that he was in the shadow of JFK. He wanted this to be his moment. And here this Black woman from, you know, Ruleville, Mississippi, was spoiling it all for him, you know? I'm curious about how you depict some of these things on screen without it feeling, you know, like, Torture. She was tortured in in many ways. I mean, we didn't talk about the quote unquote Mississippi appendectomy where they gave her a forced hysterectomy against her will in in Mississippi. There's been a lot of conversation recently about how a lot of the films that do get greenlit are ones that show Black Americans, you know, being tortured. But how do you tell a story that's really, you know, a story of uplift and power without getting bogged down in those moments? I'm curious. One of the things that that I kind of take away from how Mrs. Hamer is framed versus the other speakers at the Democratic National Convention is that, you know, they gave speeches and she gave her testimony. And that hits different, you know, like speeches are common occurrences and that's very formal in nature. And that's the expectation of this type of crowd. And Mrs. Hamer didn't give a speech like she came kind of like just raw and and gave a testimony and what happens when people give testimonies and it speaks to her church background is that there's like a spiritual negotiation that takes place between speaker and the audience and her speech so affected the audience members and the press that the press decided like we have to do something with this because people were affected. And that's a a superpower on many levels. But um, again, it's to me, it was a spiritual connection that she made with the people listening. In terms of storytelling and cinematic tools, I I would say, I think there are different ways to approach everything in, in terms of how you use the lens, how you frame the subject matter and what have you. And historically, when we see stories like this, to me, it, it feels like trauma porn. And there's a terminology for it now because it's so overused because it is what it is. These things happened. And sometimes, you know, maybe the choices made to show it and depict it have been consistently psychologically traumatizing for Black people whose ancestors lived through this and went through this. So one way that Anjanou approached this in the writing is she said to me, like, I never want to see Mrs. Hamer getting beat. We know it's happening, 
you know, and we know what that feels like. There are just other ways that we can visualize this and realize this in a way that the audience is connected to the violence that's taking place. But at the same time, being aware of an audience who's just overwrought with trauma porn. So there is a way that we will deal with it that I think hasn't been done before. Andre and I were discussing is that this is not a typical civil rights story or civil rights movie as we know them. We are doing something differently that kind of goes deeper. And we were discussing on a molecular level that will show itself very differently than anything we've ever seen before. And, and that is another reason why this story and at this time is very important to tell because we're tired. We're tired of violence against our skin on screen and off screen. So we're creatives. We have to think of different ways to do this, but equally, if not more impactful, just like we saw in the short film, um, very impactful in ways that it's just, it's, it's, it's concise, it's specific, and it's hard hitting. And we didn't see any blood. Anjanu, some of our listeners have been trying to get me to interview you for a while. You are beloved in Mississippi and in the South. And one of the questions that one of our listeners asked is, you've been able to use your art as activism in Mississippi and around the South, uh, whether it's murals or poetry or, or speaking out against uh, the governor's decision to invite Donald Trump to the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. And I'm curious, you know, right now, you're coming off of an Oscar nomination. You've got back-to-back Emmy nominations. You have seemingly, I would think, as much capital as you could possibly have in Hollywood at the moment. So why dedicate yourself to trying to get this story told in particular? You know, what, what drives you? It's what's most important to me. Acting came because someone else saw that in me, not necessarily because it was something that I really wanted to do myself. I think anybody who is a creative person in the South understands this. You know, even now, you know, the opportunities for that kind of self-expression don't exist a lot still in 2022. They just, they don't exist a lot. So imagine growing up in the seventies and eighties, my theatrical expression happened in church along with everybody, everybody under the age of 15, like you didn't have a choice, you know what I'm saying? So it wasn't like, oh, you know, my thespian experience, my thespian life began, it was, everybody was a thespian. Everybody was, you didn't have a choice, you know, Acting was not what was most important to me. Writing was, and and then that got derailed for a lot of reasons. But what was always important to me was the knowledge of that I am living in a place where my people have been on a constant attack. You know, that was in my home. I lived with a woman whose husband was kidnapped in the middle of the night and taken to jail for for bombing a church that was his own church. I lived with that. So it was in my blood. It was in my literally in my blood. So I was that before I was anything. You could take acting away. I don't want to take it away because it's actually paying my rent right now and care of other people as well. So I'm not saying that I don't want it that to to be taken away, but you can take that away, but that's still going to be there in some form. It's always going to be there. It feels like the South is a region that gets kind of depicted on screen a lot, but isn't necessarily often telling its own story. And certainly Black Southerners are not telling their own stories on film. You know, what are some other stories about the South that, that you would like to see told, Christine? 
funny because someone reminded me, and I don't know why. There's a career that I had before, a career that I'm forging now, and someone reminded me, like, you know that movie you shot in Mississippi? I actually shot a movie in um, Clarksdale, Mississippi. It was just kind of uh, weird and haunting, like, every day. Because for me, I looked at it like I'm the city girl and I'm walking backwards to me in time because it feels like parts of Clarksdale, like it just got stuck in time. So I I think I discussed this with Anjani one time. I have a tendency to romanticize things. And I was just trying to always see things from the perspective of my relatives, right? And the challenge that I feel now is to see things the way I see things and to capture this backdrop. But again, let me replace that. Capture this character in the way that it's presenting itself. Like when I was directing Anjanu, like I'm capturing like what she's giving me. In many ways, I, I like to see that, see this place through that lens, you know, like revisit it in a way that's more personal and specific to me, as opposed to always connecting it to a past so that I can personalize it maybe in the way that only I can. So there's a slight obsession that I have with the South, what it gives to me and how I regurgitate it and, 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 and you know, articulate it. So that, it's a constant process that's, that's still happening that I'm always excited about. I've never been bitten by more mosquitoes in my lifetime. It's just grueling. When I was shooting in Parksdale, like I was just eaten up by mosquitoes. I was how do people live here? How do people, how do people manage this? It's rough, but at the same time, it's challenging on, on, on a molecular level. So yeah, so just as a storyteller, I'm, I'm just always intrigued by what the subject is, is trying to tell me. And I, I feel that way about Mississippi. Like, what, what is it speaking into me today? Well, what's next for both of you? I'm working on an, the finale of All-American Homecoming as we speak. I've had a busy year of doing a lot of episodic work, a lot of it in the South. I do have a movie this fall to shoot about Kimba Smith, and it deals with minimum sentencing laws put in place by Senator Joe Biden that disproportionately institutionalized a lot of Black and brown people in, in a way that really built up the prison industrial complex you know, which is a for-profit business that not Black people are profiting from. You know, again, we're going back to uh, the Black backs of Black people and somebody's profiting off of that. So it never ends. It never ends. Pretty busy schedule in that sense. But as as Anjanu knows, like, I'm making room for Sunflower when that takes off. So that's priority in terms of what I'm excited about doing. Anjanu, what about you? I shot this limited series last year here in Chicago called 61st Street. So that's going to be on AMC at some point in the next few weeks, a couple months. And of course, we'll all be, you know, crossing our fingers for you at, at the Academy Awards here in a few weeks. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, you can uncross them. I won already. I got the nomination. That's all I can that's huge. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that for my, my state, you know? Well, thank you both so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and hope to have you back when the movie is being released. Oh, so too. What great questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really. 
And that's our show, folks. Thank you so much to Anjanou Ellis and Christine Swanson for taking time out of their busy schedules to speak with us. You can find a link to their short film, Fanny, in the show notes. I also want to give a quick shout-out and a thank you to our listener, Candice Knowles. She's a huge fan of Anjanou Ellis's, and she suggested her as a guest several weeks ago. So thank you for speaking this episode into the universe, Candace. If you've got guest ideas, share them with me on Twitter at, at John Hammontree, or better yet, include them in a five-star review for us on Apple Podcasts. That'll have the added bonus of helping us grow the show. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It's edited by Kanika Codrington and the wonderful team over at Edit Audio. And until next time, folks, thanks for reckoning with me, and be well.